Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, this is Dyke Drummond with the next edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast coming at you from beautiful Seattle, Washington, the home of thehappymd.com. And today I've got a treat. I've got a friend of the broadcast, Dr. Jim Neuenschwander. He's an ER doc, and uh, he's a member of our Physicians on Purpose community. And there's a couple of things about Jim's practice that I think are great examples for anybody who wants to have a more ideal job. So Jim, tell us a little bit about you and your practice and where you're at and all that kind of good stuff as an introduction to get us started. Well, thanks, Dyke. And, and thanks for all the things that you've done for me in this whole process. You actually came to Zanesville, where I practice emergency medicine at the Genesis Healthcare System. Hang on a second. There's the Y bridge in Zanesville. Everybody <laughs> has to know that. <laughs> and uh, or maybe more like this. The there you go. Yeah. So I practice emergency medicine. I graduated. I finished residency at Johns Hopkins in 1998. And they lured me out here, which was really cool. And I've had a a great experience here working in this hospital. One of the major points that I uh, really enjoyed about it was that when I got out, uh, they were still doing some community medicine research, which was uh, exciting to me. And then uh, I've been practicing that. I'm also board certified in addiction medicine, uh, which has been one of the many interests that I've had. And you've been busy. (laughs) I've been busy, busy. I did wound care. I'm actually, I've I've done wound care. I work in the observation unit. You know, I really dig being a doc, man. It's a cool job. And, uh, and I like it for the most part. I mean, there's, you know, I have my crummy days too. Well, and one of the things that we teach is it's important when you're out and in your practice to actually consciously create an ideal job description. What would you run towards if it was available? Because if you don't have that idea of what you really want, we spend our lives avoiding the things that we don't want. And there's a dramatic difference between those two levels of existence. And it's not common for me to find community docs who are interested in research. So tell me a little bit about why you're drawn to have research as a piece of your ideal job description. So one of the uh, things growing up, uh, I was born in Lima, Ohio. We didn't have a lot of money. So a lot of times what we did on vacation was we went camping and the camper's credo was always leave the, the campsite a little bit better than when you found it, um, whether that was stack some firewood or get rid of some garbage or whatever it was. And so I've carried that credo with a lot with me in a lot of places in my life. And one of them is medicine is to say, when I leave medicine, I want it to be better than when I found it. So, uh, you know, one of my goals has always been to make sure that I do some things to help improve the practice. And, you know, we've had some very cool stuff. Uh, we, we put together pacemaker and ICT readers. Uh, we've done some, some research in other areas. As I mentioned, addiction medicine, we've used buprenorphine in the emergency department and shown that we have fewer ER visits and hospitalizations following that. 
And it's been uh, really satisfying for me to know that I've been a part of some of these advances in medicine. I mean, we got seven kids right now. Yeah, I call them kids. They're not kids. They're adults, but they feel like kids to me uh, in medical school right now that are uh, doing their things. We got one that's starting next year and uh, eight or nine undergrads that are helping us out. So, And some of them have been first author on some papers and been very actively involved. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, I feel like... You know, it's been a great experience for me, and then I'm able to pass it on. And uh, a lot of these, uh, some of them are, you know, attendings now that have come through our, our research program here and probably making more money than me. Uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. It sort of sounds like paying it forward, right? It, it really is. I mean, there were, there's been some things in my life that people have gone out of their way to really help me. I was the first uh, person in my family to become a physician. And I've had other experiences in my life where people have really, uh, really, really gone out of their way to help me. And, and I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And you're right. It is paying it forward because I never know uh, if I can't pay back a lot of the people that helped me, but I can certainly pay it forward. And that's been a really cool thing. You know, and as we've talked about the transition, unfortunately, my community hospital, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do research in a community hospital is about 90% of medicine is practiced in the community setting, but 90% of all research is conducted in those academic centers. So it's, it was always amazing to me that I would read articles and I'd go, how does this ever fit into the real world where we're really practicing? So I really wanted to make a commitment to practice uh, or to do research in the setting where most people practice medicine and then have it be something translatable into a community medicine setting. Uh, unfortunately, my hospital has uh, kind of dropped the ball, has dropped the ball on continuing the strong um, research background that we've had in the past. We went from three full-time research nurses to basic and a research assistant to uh, our research assistant just left and our research nurse is retiring. So definitely that's had a huge impact on me. I've started to take my studies to another center and I may uh, be transitioning there full-time in, in very short time. But it's been so important to me, like I said, to, to make that impact. And I feel like if I didn't do it, it would be sort of like dying with the music inside me. And, and that's just not okay. <laughs> but you can't let that happen. <laughs> so let's, let's just teach a little bit about the ideal practice description in the vent of happiness. And let's just do a little experiment here. And I haven't, I haven't prompted Jimmy. He doesn't know what I'm going to ask him here, but I'm just really curious is what we teach is once you have your ideal job description, you can create a Venn diagram and it's a feeling Venn diagram. So you know what your ideal job would feel like if it was available to you. And you, you certainly know what this job feels like. Right. How much overlap is there between the two of them? Here's the question I have for you. Let's say that the maximum a person gets is about an eight or a nine, 80 or 90% overlap between your ideal job and your current job. If I was to get you in a situation where you were, you had the research component of your practice mm -hmm. and you had a really good overlap, a 90% overlap with your ideal job, if I pulled the research out of that practice, how much of the overlap would go away? At least 15%, at least. And, you know, the great thing is I've been working with Mark Jabin, who's a coach for the Happy MD, and um, I can't say enough nice things about him. And it's been great because in the transition, I had a pretty good overlap for a while. And then as this component started to slide away, we actually worked together on saying, hey, let's go back and see if we can make some adjustments. What's going on? Is this, you know, COVID hit and, you know, research kind of had to take a back burner and we had to sort out together. It was like, 
well, is this going to change? Is this going to go away? And then after a few meetings, it looked like I, I think that they're heading down a direction that isn't going to pull this back. So for me, the ideal job description, there was a lot of overlap with my current, but then that started to go away. Uh, and so as I started to look around and see where I could create that ideal job description, um, I actually looked at a couple different places. And interestingly, there was a friend of mine, he calls what I'm looking for the the unicorn. He says, when are you going to find your unicorn job? Because I've told him, man, I want to do research. I want to do community medicine. I'd love to do some teaching. I'd like to be able yeah. to go out and do outside work, consulting and talking. And he's like, dude, where are you going to find a job like that? And I know exactly what I was looking for. And I'm this close to having it. And I think that probably right I'm literally waiting for an email or a phone call tonight that will say, we'll take you and everything I've asked for, I've gotten. Right. And that's the key. And I've seen this happen in my coaching clients. I've seen it happen dozens and dozens of times when you get super clear on what you want. And by the way, when you're building your ideal job description, put in what you really want, even if you don't know mm -hmm. how to get it, but put it in there. And what I find is that as soon as you get really clear on what it is, no matter how complicated it is, as soon as you get really clear and start to look, it tends to show up. And some people will call that manifestation. I call it the magic bubble, but I've just noticed that clarity drives things to appear to you in a way that seems potentially hopeless or helpless at other times. Uh, real quick too, I'm going to quote you a study just for everybody who's listening and for you. Tate Shanafield did a study on professional satisfaction, a bunch of academic doctors. He divided their practices into clinical, research, and administrative. And he said, those are like the three big areas that he thinks academics function in. He asked each academic doctor to identify their favorite of the three. Did you really enjoy the clinical and teaching? Did you really enjoy the research? Did you really enjoy the leadership and the administrative? And no matter what the doctor picked, their satisfaction with their practice was highest if they were able to spend 20% of their time at work on their favorite activity. And the interesting finding, it's, it's interesting, I hope people don't use it against you, right? But the interesting finding is if you went up to 30% or 40% or 50% of their practice in their favorite area, it did not increase their practice satisfaction. Oh, damn, that's so if you can get to 20 that's adequate, at least in this study. And I'll leave a reference for the study in yeah. the notes for this podcast. 20% was enough to maximize people's satisfaction. There wasn't an additional increment. Now, the other thing I got to say is you're an ER doc. Right. And we happen to be recording this on October 14th of 2021. And what's happened is Delta peaked about two weeks ago. And it's on the downswing in much of the US of A and other places. Mm -hmm. And yet volumes are still high. And it's been absolutely, I'm going to say it, apeshit crazy. Uh, COVID deniers, vax deniers, overloaded ERs, dealing with people in the waiting room and the parking lot. How have you been? Tell us a war story or two, and then we're going to talk about your secret power. <laughs> well, uh, okay, I'll give you a good war story. Uh, it's about a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, our emergency department was so busy we had a patient that was sent in from an outside office, I guess, and she had a potassium of 6.2. So they told her to come to the emergency department. And she also had a heart rate of 40. All right. <laughs> okay. So like 6.2 is enough, right? That could probably kill you and you never know. But she's already having, you know, the symptomatology of her hyperkalemia. 
So, you know, when they drew it, it was probably 6.2. And, it, you know, you could just feel it going up. So I, I said, you know, I need to put her in a room. They're like, Dr. Newinchwander, we don't have any rooms. Uh, you know that. And I said, no, I really need this lady in a room. And they're like, no. And I said, well, then give her IV calcium. And they said, we can't give her IV calcium unless she's on a monitor. And I said, that's the <laughs> problem. Um, so anyways, I went out to the lobby and I got her and I sat her across my desk at triage and literally would go see a patient and then come back and check on her. Hey, how you doing? Still alive? I didn't say that. Are you still alive? But, you know, we would chat and her daughter was there. And it's the first time in my career that I have billed critical care time from the lobby. I gave critical care time because she had a life-threatening uh, disease that could have progressed to either a severe mortality or mor- morbidity or mortality. So I billed her for critical care time while she was in the lobby. Um, and then I saw that a patient was being discharged from room three. I literally went back to the room, took the sheets off of the bed. There was another, there was a tech in there, sprayed down the bed, you know, clean up the handles, whatever, put the sheets away, helped him put the sheet back on the bed, went back out to the lobby, took her out of the wheelchair that I had next to my, you know, across from me in, in triage and wheeled her back to the room. That's the kind of insanity that we're facing. It's got to be some kind of world record, at least for me, to deliver critical care time in the lobby. It's just, how do you deal with that? And then there were 30, more than 30 other patients out in the emergency department with all kinds of problems in the lobby. It's it's very hard. The big reason it's happening right now, and again, I'm going to put this down as a data point uh, since we're recording it in October of 2021, is the staffing shortages, Right. There's been an exodus away from frontline staff members in all aspects of in and outpatient medicine. And then there's been COVID vaccination mandates and people quitting and all sorts of stuff. I'm assuming that the reason you had to do that in the in the lobby is because you didn't have staffing to open up all the rooms that were available. And it's a huge trickle down effect type when we have we don't have enough nurses to get patients sometimes. Sometimes we have beds upstairs, but we don't have the nurses to take care of patients up there. So if you can imagine. We're in this circumstance where even if we can get them out of the emergency department, we've stabilized them, diagnosed them, you know, they're appropriate to go upstairs. They're not going upstairs because we don't have any floor nurses. You know, I don't have enough ER nurses either. I mean, it, you know, we, we used to put people in the hallways, but now we can't put people in the hallways because we don't have enough nurses to care for them in the hallway. Right. So we have these critically ill patients that, I mean, it, it is so, so, so hard and, and, you know, we had our, we did our team huddle today, this morning before I got started, because I also work in the COVID clinic. When they, they went to the family medicine docs and they were like, hey, you want to help us with, you know, diagnose patients with COVID? And they were like, no. They went to internal <laughs> medicine and they asked them, hey, will you guys staff our COVID clinic? No. Uh, I think they went to pulmonary critical care and there, there was a big no from them. No, no, no. <laughs> so finally, they were like, well, who's who's the one group of docs that we can ask to do anything that will take care of anyone, everyone? And it was the ER docs. So we've been running the COVID clinic and I worked in the COVID clinic today. And uh, it was funny because one of the patients came in and they're like, well, we need a doctor that's specialty is COVID. And I said, well, kind of, that's me. <laughs> right. Apart from the pulmonologist, right? It's you. You're number two. <laughs> I, and we get a lot of number two. Uh, because we looked at it and we said, these patients are coming to the emergency department. Anyways, we see them early, we see them middle and we see them late. And so we said, well, let's just go, let's just go ahead and staff the clinic because we know as well as anybody what these people look like in every phase of COVID. It's overwhelming because what's happening then is that we're working tons of shifts. So I'm literally in the middle of working seven straight days right now. And I think I went 10 straight days, uh, a little less than a week ago. So, you know, I'm pretty crispy. 
uh, I think I used the word salty in our last uh, mastermind. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't definitely at my best uh, that day. We got some really nice advice from our colleagues. And, and I really would put a plug in for anybody that's thinking about joining POP to please go ahead and do that. It's, uh, it's well worth it. We have a strong group. It's great representation of different specialties, ethnic heritages, uh, and is that a, is that the right? Anyways, there's just all kinds of you know all sorts of different colors and flavors. We all are. <laughs> I mean, it's great. Is this rainbow of of differences? And you know, here I am, this old white guy. Hey, me too. Yeah, I know. On. I know. We say that all the time, but you know, we have feelings too, right? Let's talk a little bit about your superpower yeah. because one of the things you revealed on one of the calls just recently is how you hold your center in these crazy times. And anybody can take a lesson from what Jim's going to tell you here, because all of us can do this. It just takes a few minutes to center yourself. But tell us a little bit about this superpower I've been alluding to. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm that powerful or, and definitely not super. But it was something I think I got it from one of your books. Actually, it was the burnout, stop burnout. When it just talked about what is your mission and what you do. And I really thought about it. And I'm like, well, I want to make people heal and be healthy. And then I thought, but that's not really my choice. You know, I don't get to make that decision. They have to make that decision. And so what I came up with was I want to provide the greatest opportunity for health and healing. And then if patients take it, hey, great. You know, sometimes I say, I think you need to be in the hospital. This is chest pain that's concerning. You walk up the stairs, you break out in sweat, it radiates on your left arm, you feel like you're going to puke. Um, that sounds like a heart attack. And they say, Doc, I, I'd like to, but I, I can't because my mother's sick at home. Nobody will take care of the dog, blah, blah. And I say, well, I'll be in here at eight o'clock tomorrow morning uh, or six o'clock tomorrow morning. And if you come back, I'll put you in the hospital. I understand those kind of things. Just if you get into trouble between now and then, and there'll be no hard feelings. Uh, and, and likewise, I write a prescription for antibiotics. And if you look at the pathetic number of people that actually ever finish antibiotics or even fill the prescription, you know, it's not very high. And yet at the same time, it's not up to me for you to take those, take my advice or take those medications or do the things that I think will be best for you. It's just up to me to provide the opportunity. And I hope that people take um, those opportunities to improve their health and healing. At the end of the day, though, I still can feel comfortable with what I've done. And if I've done well, then that's a good day. And, um, and likewise, you know, people live and die. That's horrible. You know, shouldn't think necessarily think like that. But I do CPR or we do, you know, resuscitations on everybody. I do the same thing every single time. Sometimes patients live, sometimes they don't. What did I do? I just provided that opportunity for them to live. And, you know, that then becomes really between a patient and their maker. Uh, that's not me. And I don't take the blame. I don't take the credit. I just show up and, and give every opportunity I can. So give us that mantra again. I provide the greatest opportunities for health and healing. I provide the greatest opportunities for health and healing, which is a great mantra. It's a one breath, <laughs> yeah. five second, yeah. in and out. Remind yourself, breathe, release. I provide the greatest opportunity for health and healing. I provide the greatest opportunity for health and healing. And again, no attachment. The opportunity for you is here. I am a channel for that opportunity. You decide what you want to do with that. Really cool. And I forget it. I forget it too. It's funny because as I was preparing for this this week and thinking about it, and like there were times where I wanted to grab either staff or patients by their throats and shake them and say, you know, <laughs> I'm giving you this opportunity. Why are you taking it? And I was thinking, 
I probably am not the walking example of how uh, perfectly this can be can be carried out. But um, what I am is somebody that falls down, picks himself back up. And frankly, I, I, you know, when I'm really at my best, I repeat that over and over again. My, my squeegee breath or my, my mantra is every time I get my hands wet, I wash my hands, which is probably, you know, hundred or hundreds of times a day. I just take a breath in and then I let it out, which essentially is every time I walk in and out of a patient room. So um, when I'm at my best, it flows. And when I'm decompensated, I'm better than I used to be, but getting, uh, getting better. Yep. You're so darn human. I love it. Perfect example, right? It's a practice. And again, practice makes better. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Words to live by. Thanks so much for being with us here today. And we talked about, just to recap the call, we talked about community-based research, having research be a piece of your ideal job description, using the ideal job description to drive how you search for a more ideal situation. And when you get clear, it will come to have a personal mission and a personal mantra to keep you centered and a nice little war story about billing for critical care in the waiting room. It's unbelievable. I still can't believe it happened. <laughs> right on. So this is Dyke Drummond, James Neuenschwander, our ER doc from, what is it? Zanesville, Ohio. By the Zanesville, way, they, Ohio, Why bridge, they have a place in Zanesville where a bridge goes over the river and it splits into a Y. And it was actually in the early days of aviation, a, a big turning point for airplanes flying to Chicago from the south. They would see the Y bridge at Zanesville and turn to the west. <laughs> So here we are. I didn't know that was the origin. That's funny. I've been here all this time. I never understood what that was from. The Y Bridge. I actually have a Y Bridge uh, coaster that I bought when I was in town. That was years ago. So once again, Dyke Drummond here with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. I'll see you on the next broadcast. And until then, keep breathing. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Dyke.